Would you like to take the guesswork out of your holiday shopping and give a truly unique present this year? If so, give the gift of significance. Discover Your Second Act Significance is our brand new power-packed program backed by a proven life transformation system. It's perfect for anyone who's feeling stuck, dissatisfied, or discontented and wants to start creating a life they love. The best part? It's your choice what holiday offer you want to use. You can treat yourself and get 25% off your enrollment by using the code SIGNIFICANCE25. Or you can treat yourself and a friend with our special twist on BOGO, a buy one, give one holiday deal. The choice is yours. To claim your discount, visit secondactsignificance.com today. That's secondactsignificance.com. But don't dawdle. This offer ends when this year ends, on December 31st. Now, here's today's podcast episode. Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. The wounds we carry with us are not obstacles to simply get over. Rather, our wounds are the way through, and loss gives us new eyes to see the grace threaded through all humanity. She ended her thoughts on this subject by saying this, a beautiful world waits for us on the other side of loss. I'll say it again so you absorb that. Write it down. Keep it in your planner. Put it on your phone. A beautiful world waits for us on the other side of loss. A world so expansive, it has room for our pain. Those words spoken by our guest, Kayla Steckline, during our special fall series, Gaining from Loss, make up just one of the nuggets we discussed today as we put a bow on the package, the gift that has been that series. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. Warwick and I dedicate this sixth episode of the series to exploring the wisdom we heard from all five of our guests. The insights they offered form a roadmap on how to gather the gains out of even the most devastating losses. Number one, be patient. Number two, work to change what you cannot accept. Number three, understand there is room for your pain on the other side of your loss. Number four, intentionally cultivate joy as you continue to grieve. And number five, live as a good ancestor to those who come after you. And here's a pro tip before you keep listening. Have a pen and paper handy to take notes. Not as homework, but as inspiration for soul work. I think the place to start, Warwick, is really to ask the question that may be on the minds of people who are listening right now. Uh, maybe they didn't hear all of the episodes. We encourage you to go back and listen uh, if you did not hear all of them. But why did we do this series? What was the the impetus for doing Gaining from Loss? Well, you know, this time of year, the holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, uh, a lot of holidays at this time of year. And it can be a time of celebration and joy, but it can also be a time of contemplation and sadness. It could be 
the loss of loved ones. I mean, as we speak, you know, I've lost both my parents. My mother died five years ago. My dad, gosh, 30 years ago. I know you've lost your parents. There's that sense of loss. And for some, uh, their families, uh, there may be challenges at the Thanksgiving table or Christmas dinner table or what have you. There could be tension. There could be conflict. There could be absence of ones who may be alive, but there's broken relationships. And so there's a missing seat for the worst, in one sense, the worst reason is there's unreconciled relationships. So sometimes the holidays, they can be a time of joy, but they can be a time of contemplation, sadness, and sometimes a deep sense of loss. So that's kind of why we thought of the holidays as a great time to talk about a series on loss. Right. And it, it seems, I mean, kind of counterintuitive, right? Holidays are supposed to be, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And as you said, it is not always, right? In, in our individual experiences, it's not always the most wonderful time of the year. Because as you said, we've lost some loved ones along the way. We've got some conflict with members of our family. And the, the, the learnings that we have to talk about here, um, uh, we hope, listener, will, will help you navigate some of that rough terrain as uh, you you work your way through uh, the most wonderful time of the year. Um, one thing that I thought was really interesting, Warwick, and, and this entire episode, let's say this at the outset, this entire episode is kind of um, based on the tent poles of this conversation that we're going to have, is based on uh, the most recent blog at crucibleleadership.com, um, which summarizes the key learnings of this series. Um, but one of the things that that blog talks about is we struggled a bit with what to name this series. Um, it didn't occur to us until, uh, you know, we were so busy planning the series and arranging guests that, um, you know, a few days before the series was about to hit record that, and we were going to start talking to guests, it was like, oh, we don't have a title for this thing. What are we going to call it? And uh, we knocked a few things around and um, we we landed on gaining from loss, but we were worried a little bit. I'll admit, I was a little worried that, you know, will people think that's a little too glib? Um, is it too cute? Gaining from loss, get it loss and gain. Um, and will people really at a deeper level, at a, at a more meaningful level, be like, yeah, loss is not something you gain from um, why did we ultimately land on choosing that title? You know, at Crucible Leadership and Beyond the Crucible, we're all about giving people hope. In every episode of this podcast, we talk about uh, our guest's worst day, how they bounce back from that, how they found hope and healing. So uh, that's really what we want for our listeners is to, even if today is their worst day, to feel like that there is hope in life, there is redemption in the broad sense of that word. And so loss is painful, whether it's loss of a loved one, a physical tragedy. And we've had a lot of different kinds of loss in the podcast over all the last several years, certainly in this series we have. And so, you know, what hope, what gain can you find from that loss? I mean, you can't undo what happened, such as the death of a loved one, but you know, what can you learn from that? Is there some way while it's devastating and you wish it never happened? Is something, is there some hidden blessing, some hidden gain that you can get from it? And it sounds counterintuitive, it almost sounds heartless, cold, uh, lack of empathy. But each right. guest we had said that they did gain something from it. They learned right. something from it. It did give them some, there was some hope that came out of it. So it sounds very counterintuitive, but 
there is something you can gain from loss. You never want the loss. Nobody wants loss, like the loss of a loved one. But what can you learn from it? Is there some gain that you can get from from tragedy? It's kind of, I think, what we settled on. Right. It was funny because the first episode that we did, I was still concerned enough about it that I asked our first guest, Shelly Klingerman, is that, you know, do you, would you say that you gained from your loss? And she said, yes. And then I asked that same question of every other guest, all five guests that we had, and all of them said, yes, indeed, they had gained something from their loss. So um, from that perspective, we landed on a good place with the title. And here's an interesting side note. So, and uh, let me preface what I'm about to say, listener, with this is not me trying to evangelize you. Uh, this is not a, I'm not proselytizing when I quote from the Bible here. I'm doing it to show that this idea of gaining from loss wasn't something that Warwick and I and the Beyond the Crucible team sort of figured out all on our own. We're not that smart. Um, uh, from the Bible, uh, and I just heard this in church. Here's why I'm bringing it up at all, because it was it, it's it's like first and foremost in my mind and made me go, ah, well, this there's nothing new under the sun. And this idea of gaining from loss has been around a while. Uh, this last Sunday, which is as we're recording this episode, was only three days ago. Our pastor at our church uh, preached out of Philippians 3. And in that chapter uh, of the Bible, if you're not familiar, if you're not familiar with it, um, it's Paul, the apostle Paul saying um, this. Uh, now this, just let me back up and give the backstory as Warwick likes to do. The backstory of the Apostle Paul, he was Saul. He was a, uh, he was not a follower of Christ. He was, uh, he was a persecutor of those who followed Christ. Uh, he was, um, he was a pretty high up in the hierarchy of people who were not Christians at that time. Um, so he had some, he had gained, uh, he had a lot of gain in his life in terms of how he was living day to day in the things that meant something to him. Um, but then uh, he has an encounter with Jesus. He becomes a follower of Jesus. And um, well, he loses all that, all that worldly stuff that he had. But he also, once he starts following Jesus, ends up getting imprisoned and beaten. And he suffers many, 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 many in our language crucibles. In this, these verses in Philippians 3, this is what Paul says about the idea of gain and loss. He says this, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Again, we're not having church up in here where I bring that up to say in the first century, there was a guy talking about gaining from loss. This is not a new subject for us to be discussing, is it? It's not, Gary. And it's funny when you mentioned to me as we were preparing that you know you were going to mention this, what you didn't know that this is Philippians seven through uh, you know fourteen is one of my life verses. Right. And, right. Um, you know, as I was recovering, as listeners would know pretty well by now, losing. Uh, my family's 150-year-old uh, media business in Australia with a failed $2.25 billion takeover bid. I felt like I betrayed my father, my great-great-grandfather, John Fairfax, 4,000-plus employees at the company, caused ill feelings in my family. Just, I mean, so much was gone, but, you know, my faith and my faith in Christ is the 
cornerstone anchor of who I was. And I, I clung to these verses, uh, again, in, in the NIV. And but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, uh, for whom I have lost all things. And in the old NIV version, it says, I consider them rubbish, that I'm again Christ to be found in him, and, and so forth. So I took this extremely personally that John Fairfax Limited, 150-year-old, billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar business, it's loss, it's garbage, it's rubbish, it's nothing compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So in a broader sense, yeah, you know, it was a lot of money, but a higher purpose, a higher calling, a life of significance, as we call it, that there were more things that are important than money, status, position, empires. Uh, nothing wrong with success, but there's more to life than, than empires. And then at the very end, one of the things I kept almost like a mantra on a daily basis mm. as it's going uh, down to like verse 13, you know, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So I was thinking, okay, I'm going to forget what is behind. Okay, I made mistakes, cataclysmic mistakes. Yes, I, it was a $2 billion loss, but I'm going to forget about that. You know, it's a daily basis of forgetting. It's not one and done. And I'm going right. to move ahead with right. my life that ended up being crucible leadership. It took a while to get there and it was an evolution, but I was not going to be stuck in the pit. I was going to move forward. And as we'll hear, I mean, I've learned a lot from my loss. There's been a lot of gain from my loss in my own life with, you know, people we have on the team, friends such as yourself, Gary, and the work that we do in providing hope to others. So I've gained a lot. None of that would have been possible without the loss. Would it have been nice to not go through that loss? <laughs> sure. That would be nice, yeah. you know, the editorial cartoons and the all of the stuff and the pain uh, of several decades, sure. But have I gained from the loss? Oh, no question. There's been a lot of gain and blessing from that loss. So I can testify to that. So yeah, that verse is like a life verse, life passage for me that I clung to as I tried to claw my way out of the pit with, from my perspective, uh, divine help. So, yep. Right. And and two points to make off of what you just said before we get into the meat, the, the the main course of what we're going to talk about. One is this podcast wouldn't exist if you did not gain from loss, right? I mean, you wouldn't have created Beyond the Crucible. Beyond the Crucible is a concrete evidence of your gain from loss, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it is. And when I feel like um, I was up at uh, Seton Hall uh, a few days ago, actually, um, the end of last week as we're recording this, when I'm giving speech to, which is a university in northern New Jersey, I'm giving speech to like a, uh, you know, first year class at Seton Hall with their Bacino, Bacino Leadership Institute. What I was talking about, you know, your worst, it doesn't have to define you and there's hope and redemption in a broader sense. It was clear that it was meaningful to them, and the questions I was asked was just profound and incisive questions. Those are like drops of grace. It's like, okay, the loss was bad, but I'm using that loss in some ways, in this case, to help some students at Seton Hall to hopefully have some sense of hope and calling and redemption in a broader sense. So those moments make it feel like, okay, you know, there's a hope, there's meaning, there's purpose. Those events are deeply meaningful as we move forward from our loss. 
Yeah. And, and there's the second point that I want to emphasize before we get into the main course. And that's this, your loss and the gain that you got from it and are still getting from it is, is circumstantially different than other people's. We, I mean, that's a, that's a hallmark of what we've discovered on uh, now more than 140 episodes of beyond the crucible is that emotions that run through loss that run through crucibles we have discovered are remarkably similar even when the circumstances of that loss of that crucible is much different. So all the guests that we're going to talk about have had different losses than you, have had different losses than me, but there are some emotional touch points with what they have to say, right? With what they've been through emotionally, similar to what you've been through emotionally and me and everybody else we've talked to in 140 episodes. Yeah, it's so true, Gary. I mean, I go back as listeners will be aware where Crucible Leadership and my book, um, and Beyond the Crucible, my book, Crucible Leadership, uh, Embrace Your Trials to Lead to Life Significance. It was birthed at um, 2008 when I gave a talk in church about what I went through and lessons learned, and since it's a church, what I felt like some lessons that you know, God was sharing with me, at least in my life. Um, when weeks and months afterwards, people would come up to me and say, you know what, Warwick, what you shared really helped me. And I'm thinking... There aren't any former media moguls right, in right. the congregation. This is a collection of just, you know, different folks in Maryland where I live. And so I think there's this universality of pain and loss and vulnerability, and which is remarkable to me. I remember just one of our earliest guests on the podcast a few years ago, David Charbonnet, who was Navy SEAL uh, that was paralyzed in a training accident uh, in Southern California where he lives. And uh, and he became a paraplegic through that. And I remember saying to him, David, I feel apologetic because what I went through is nothing compared to what you went through. And in a very gracious and profound way, David said, you know what, Warwick, your worst day is your worst day. It's not a competition. And so every guest we've had, we've had quadriplegics, paraplegics, victims of abuse, people who've lost businesses, lost loved ones, every kind of crucible you can imagine. They all have the same heart and same spirit. It's not a competition to who's had the worst day, who's had the worst tragedy. They're very generous with that. And so, yeah, I think I've, I've learned a lot from that, that, you know, we can uh, gain from gain from these uh, tragedies that, uh, that happened to us. And um, our guests all have that broader perspective of hope and they don't judge other people. And it's, um, yeah, it, it's remarkable. I just feel privileged to, privileged to learn from the folks we've had on the series, and certainly this last series, I've learned a ton. So, yeah. Let's get into some of that stuff that you learned and that I learned. Um, uh, there are f- sort of five uh, takeaway learnings, listener, that we're going to go through. Um, these are all based on things that one guest told us as we were going through it. So five things, five guests. Each point is something one of those guests talked to us about when we interviewed them. What's a practical action step that will help you gain from loss? The first point is be patient. And that came from uh, our guest, Jason Schechterly. Uh, He was barely a year into his dream career as a police officer in 2001 when his squad car was hit from behind while it was stopped. That was hit by a taxi that was traveling more than 100 miles an hour. The explosive fire in which he was trapped for minutes left him in a coma for two and a half months, initially robbed him of his eyesight. 
and uh, led to severe scarring and disfigurement as he endured 56 surgeries to first save his life and then improve his life. But even though the, the physical and emotional trauma of all of that was heavy, he has come to live by the motto he, he encourages those he talks to as a motivational speaker to live by. And he gave us, he told us, I actually saw him speak and he had it on a slide and, and where he was speaking, I took a picture of it. And we talked about it in his episode of the series. And what he says is, sometimes the most beautiful inspirational changes will disguise themselves as utter devastation. Be patient. That one, obviously, when I first heard him say it, struck me as uh, really, sorry to steal your word, profound, but also <laughs> made me realize um, he would be a, a fantastic guest for the show, right? It's really true. I mean, Jason is such an inspiring person. He's filled with hope. I mean, as some people might know who've you know, had people go through medical tragedies, being a burn victim is, I guess, about as painful experience as you can possibly experience. It's as, as painful as humans can experience. And that was certainly his experience with 56 surgeries. And it took him years to, you know, just uh, physically um, grapple with that. But accepting the fact that he is disfigured, I mean, he won't go to places like Disneyland because he's afraid of the effect it will have on kids. Right, he doesn't right. want to scare them. I mean, which is is so sad, but he's just filled with hope and and grace for, um, you know, uh, and you have to listen to the podcast to just hear all, all the details, but it's a miracle that he's alive. He happened to be two minutes away from one of the best burn centers in the country, apparently, in Phoenix, and there was a police car very near and a several hundred feet away, a fire engine. I mean, just that could, you know, put out this burning patrol car just, and you know, he wouldn't have had his uh, last child if he had died because his last child was, was, you know, born right. um, after the accident. So he was just full of grace, full of, of, of gratitude for just being alive. And um, yeah, his, his attitude to life, the lightness in his spirit, despite the pain and yeah, you know, the real physical challenges he has even today, it's just inspirational. It's hard to even understand how somebody could have the attitude that he has and to feel like his life is a blessing. I mean, later on in that blog that you wrote, you sort of end this section with a quote that he says in which he says, I have gained everything and lost nothing. It's like, how can that be? But right. he's just made that choice to be positive. And um, yeah, he, his life and story is such an inspiration. Uh, it just, it's mind boggling to consider his attitude to life, given the excruciating pain that he's gone through and has to live with. Both physically and emotionally, right? I mean, that, there's a yes. lot of, yes, there's, there's physical trauma for sure, but the emotional trauma in many ways was just as bad in its own uh, in its own lane. But the point he made there about being patient, right? There were a number of times, two and a half months in a in a coma, uh, fifty six surgeries. There are a number of times that Jason Schechterly could have said, "That's it, I'm done." 
I'm not going to keep fighting. I'm just going to, as you've said many times, I'm going to lie in bed, pull the cover, you know, pull the covers over my head and just kind of, you know, do nothing. And then eventually death will come naturally. And that'll be that. His point was be patient, right? Tomorrow's going to be better than today. It's that optimistic view that it can, good changes come disguised as, as losses. If you wait them out, if you have resilience, if, as you've pointed out, they can they can reshape themselves into gains, into blessings. And one of the things I'm going to love about this episode is I get to ask you questions I've never heard you answer before, uh, which is kind of fun. And the first question I want to ask you on this idea of being patient is you talked a little at the top of the show here about your crucible, your big crucible of losing the, the family media uh, dynasty, $2.25 billion. How was being patient part of your bounce back story of moving beyond your crucible? How did that look for you? You know, I think for me, obviously, I'm pretty self-aware, I'm afraid, so I have my faults. But I have very high perseverance and patience, in, at least in the perseverance sense. But, <laughs> you know, there can be, am I always patient when, you know, my kids were younger in the 90s and like most dads, it's like, can we leave already? And then we would stop for five minutes, you know, um, right. in some uh, rest stop on a freeway, and it'd be half hour, 40 minutes. I mean, how long does it take to go to the bathroom and get a snack? But, you know, I'd say 80, 90% of dads across the country or the world have that sense, impatient feeling. Let's get going. Let's get to where we're trying to go. But leaving that sense of patience, yeah, I mean, for me, it was just devastating, but... Um, just one more day, how can I move forward? It took a while in the, in the 90s. I think for me, what kind of uh, fueled uh, maybe my patient was my faith. You know, just that verse we talked about um, in Philippians 3, forgetting what is behind, straining to what is, what is ahead, you know, uh, losing $2.25 billion, $150 uh, family businesses. Rubbish. It's nothing compared to, for, my, for me, my faith in Christ. So, I guess my patience was fueled by uh, my faith, and I just clung to that, that uh, nothing is more important than my faith. And again, in this case, my faith in Jesus. It That was sort of an anchor for my soul that kept me uh, going. And you know, the love of uh, my wife, who's American, we've been married over 30 years, and my kids, that unconditional love. And then gradually, step by step, as I took baby steps, and again, listeners are familiar with this, you know, work started off in an aviation services firm in Maryland in the late 90s, doing business and financial analysis, got on a couple of nonprofit boards, became a certified uh, International Coach Federation uh, executive coach. After the talk and shirt, started writing my book, Crucible Leadership, and then from there, Beyond the Crucible, the podcast, and so forth. So, you know, my patience was the anchor for that was my faith, and as well as the support of my wife and my family. But as I had small steps, again, I almost think of them as drops of grace. No matter how small, I was like, okay. I don't think I thought of it in, in these Jason Schechterly terms, but maybe tomorrow can be better than today. Today was better than yesterday. Right. You know, Hey, I got a job. I'm actually doing something that I can do. I was pretty good at Excel back then and I could do financial analysis. So yeah, I think I'm in, uh, inherently I'm somebody with very high perseverance. You know, um, I can't relate to what Jason went through, that level of pain. That's, 
you know, uh, Olympic level, uh, more than Olympic level of patience and perseverance. Uh, I don't feel like I needed right. that level. Uh, but that being said, it was, yeah, my inherent, I guess I am a, have a lot of perseverance in my wiring values. I'm not sure how you look at it, but my faith, support of my family, and then meaningful work where I felt like I was making a difference, even in some small ways. So it was a combination of things that helped fuel my patience and perseverance. Yeah. And all of this, this talk about being patient in the aftermath of loss made me think of, and I didn't have time to look it up. So I may be remembering it wrong. I don't know, but I seem to remember reading a story at some point uh, in my career where it said that when you lose a job under circumstances that are not ideal to you, a loss, one of the worst things you can do is just jump into something else right away. In other words, breathe, take some time to make sure you're doing what you're going to do. It's 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 one of the principles of Beyond the Crucible, right? Is find out what it is that you're really, you know, wired for, passionate about, and go pursue that. And that's another element of patience in the wake of a loss slash crucible experience. All right, that's point one. Be patient. How you get beyond a loss and turn it into a gain. The second point uh, is to work to change what you cannot accept. All right. Not to accept what you cannot change, but to change what you cannot accept. Those words came from Shelly Klingerman. She would be the first to tell you, and she did on the podcast episode where we interviewed her. They weren't original to Shelly Klingerman. She she heard them somewhere and she repeated them on the show. But Shelly's story is that her, her brother, Greg, who was a police officer, was murdered last year in an ambush while he walked to his car after work. She was devastated by the loss, but refused to let, here's the word that you used earlier, Warwick, that evil act be the period on the sentence of Greg's life. She refused to accept what she could not change and instead dove into changing what she could not accept. So she launched a nonprofit called Project Never Broken, which is committed to extending hope and healing through stressing resiliency to other law enforcement officers and their families struggling through the aftermath of trauma. Shelly dedicated herself to change what she cannot accept. And, you know, I've got my own story of how that has played out in my life uh, will hopefully be helpful and instructive to you, listener, especially as the holidays roll around, right? Relationships with family members can get sticky, can get... um, feel like it's not the most wonderful time of the year. And there was, um, if you listened 90 episodes ago or 40 episodes ago to the podcast in which Warwick interviewed me, I had a a, a colorful, um, crucible-filled upbringing and early adulthood. Some of the fallout of that has been, at times, some tension in family relationships. There was one relationship a couple of years ago, and I'll say it, it's with my sister, Jill. She's not going to be mad at me for saying that because we worked to um, uh, change what we didn't want to accept, that there was, that there was a, a, a cleave between us, that, that, that there was, there was a broken relationship there. And my determination when that happened just a few years ago, when, when there was a falling out between me and my sister, my determination was simply to love her. My determination to change what I couldn't accept, I did not 
I, I would not accept that I would never speak to my sister again as long as I live. So I was committed to change it. How was I committed to change it? I was going to love her every chance I got. When I wrote my first book on my sort of manifesto for public relations called Bite the Dog, I dedicated it up front to five people. One of them was my sister, Jill, who taught me how to write, not necessarily arranging words into sentences, but how to form letters at that age. She's seven years older than I am. And uh, through a, a series of events that led to her being made aware of the fact that I did that, she called me up one day, apologized for what she could own in that, in that frame of the relationship. And I immediately, again, talking about change what you cannot accept. I could have stood my ground and said, as you can do this Christmas around the table, folks, you can say, well, you treated me badly and you cannot forgive. I forgave instantly. Because what was more important to me than whatever quote unquote rights I thought I had that were violated, and I didn't do everything right either, um, I chose to change what I couldn't accept. I couldn't accept I'd never speak to my sister again. So when I had the opportunity, boom, like that, relationship mended, forgiveness extended, and we are today close as ever. Um, I've got texts in my phone filled with I love yous and photos and all those kinds of things. That is a real world example, especially as the holidays approach, that some of you may be dealing with a, a strained relationship with a family member. If you're going to sit around the table with them, even if you're not going to sit around the table with them this holiday season, commit yourself to change what you cannot accept. Don't accept the broken relationship. Commit yourself to change it. I know, Warwick, you've had you can't go through life, right? You can't go through life without having situations that you won't accept, that you don't want to accept, and that you want to commit to change. I know you've had some experience with this too. Yeah, I have. Um, but uh, I just want to comment on what you said because you know it's really profound as well as Shelley Klingerman. I mean, one of the things that you mentioned is uh, you have broken relationships. And, and I think you basically said this. I think we can get too hung up on who was right. And one of the things that I say, at least to myself, is, you know, and to really anybody, is being right is overrated. You know, who's right and who's <laughs> wrong. And certainly right. in a marriage, you know, it's like, you know, I'm not saying, oh, you know, just confess things you've never done and, you know, all that. I'm not trying to be silly about it, but trying to minutely figure out, okay, how much is my fault, their fault. My attitude is if, if there's a 50-50 chance that what I did was wrong, I'd rather just say I'm sorry, and I feel like yep. if, from my paradigm, if if I've confessed to something that maybe really wasn't my fault, I think God will forgive me for that. I don't think He'll hold it against me. You know, mm -hmm. if we confess too much, I don't think He really holds the ledger that way. So, you know, be focused more on, as Gary said so eloquently, focus more on the relationship than quote unquote who's right and who's wrong. You know, and you you know it, it takes two people. I mean, Jill could have pushed back despite every entreaty and reach out that Gary did and said, no, forget it. No. And then uh, nothing Gary could have done then. But fortunately, that wasn't the case. It could have been. Right. It sometimes is, but it wasn't here, thankfully. And that was a blessing. So, yeah, be focused on you can't heal everything, but be focused on forgiveness and less focused on who's right and who's wrong. And here's something that. I don't want to stop you, but it, while sure. this is going on, yeah, this yeah, idea yeah. of being right is overrated. I challenge you, listener, to go visit a cemetery and look at the headstones. 
I will give you $100 if you can give me a picture of a headstone that says he was right, she was right on someone who's passed away. That's just <laughs> not the way life works when we're no longer here. So live your life that way. Sorry, I didn't mean to, Amen. to interrupt Amen. you, but was... I wanted to make that challenge to our listeners. Very well said. And I think what I love about Shelley Klingman's story is losing her you know, brother. He was just coming out of some uh, federal you know, building, FBI building, I think. And, and he was just ambushed. He wasn't even on the job, as they say. He was just, right. you know, for no apparent reason. And so I love what Shelley Klingerman says, I'm not going to let evil win, which means um, I'm going to find a way to make something good happen out of this devastating loss. And, you know, she turned her energy into Project Never Broken. And so, yeah, you know, she could have used her energy to be bitter and angry, but she used that right. energy in a positive way, a lot to be learned from that. And I love the phrase, work to change what you cannot accept. So, yeah, I mean, in, in my case, as listeners go, know, growing up in a very large family media business, where there's a lot of wealth, there's often a lot of broken relationships. It's just money and power tend to distort your thinking, your values, you know, everybody's clawing for position, at least to, to a degree. And there was sort of broken relationships for many decades. I mean, even many, you know, some decades before I was born, there's just factions within the family. It doesn't really matter who was right and who was wrong. Uh, but right. there was certainly some ill feeling. And uh, obviously, when I launched the takeover and some other family members were on the other side of it, that caused uh, ill feeling. And, um, you know, one of the things when I wrote the book is I never wanted to write a tell-all book that said I was right, they were wrong. Because that's lame, boring, and untrue. I made plenty of Even mistakes. Even some publishers and, wanted you to do that in Australia. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I mean, but because dirt sells, so to speak. Right. And I get, I get right. it. You know, I mean, that's why you have uh, tabloids in certain sections of the newspaper world. That you know, it's all about stuff uh, on celebrities that you know and bad stuff they've done. But that was never my mindset. Yes, you know, some family members had thrown my dad out as chairman. Uh, in 76, 11 years before I did the takeover in 87. But I really never focused on things I thought maybe weren't appropriate. I made certainly my share of mistakes in doing the takeover, uh, most of all. But yeah, I think over time, relations, and I get asked this when I uh, speak, relations are actually uh, you know pretty good. Even a family member that probably you know had the, the most angst towards me uh, over the is when I sent him a book, he said, thank you for writing it. It was courageous and um, appreciate you doing it. So I feel like that was a good sign. So yeah, I mean, in my own way, I uh, I try to, um, certainly for me, I really try not to hold grudges, which is a process. I got to say, it's not a one and done and, and forgive. And um, it's a muscle to be exercised in this whole relational forgiveness area that we're talking about is um, from my faith paradigm, you know, we forgive because we've been forgiven. Um, who of us are perfect? Who of us haven't done things we're not proud of? So, you know, if we want to be forgiven, we should forgive others. So it's just, right. it's a mantra uh, philosophy to live by from my perspective. Right. And it makes me think, uh, this, this whole idea makes me think, again, listeners who heard my episode of the podcast, episode 50, in which Warwick interviewed me, uh, of the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, the AA idea of all you can do is you're trying to come back from 
your alcoholism and trying to live a life without alcohol, uh, my my sponsor told me, all you can do is deal with your side of the street. That's the only thing you can clean up is your side of the street. You're not responsible for the other side of the street. So you do your best to uh, forgive, to extend forgiveness and to um, uh, hopefully receive forgiveness, to, to make amends, to apologize, do those things, but you're not in control of the ultimate solution. And I think what Shelley Klingerman said here is uh, you work to change what you cannot accept. That doesn't mean it's going to go away, but you work to change it and that will lift uh, the weight off your shoulders. And it certainly has begun to do that for her, even though her brother was was tragically murdered just a little over a year ago. So those are our first two points. Uh, be patient and work to change what you cannot accept. Our third key point from the Gaining from Loss series is to understand there's room for your pain on the other side. As you move beyond your pain, beyond your crucible, there's still room over there on the other side for your pain. And that wisdom came from Kayla Steckline. Uh, Kayla lost her husband, Andrew, to suicide in 2018, leaving, uh, leaving her a widow with three young boys to raise and an unexpected, uncertain future to face. What she learned was, as she moved forward tentatively at first, was that it's a daily choice to welcome and acknowledge the pain, and it's a daily choice to welcome and chase the joy. This is another thing she said that was deeply meaningful, deeply resonant to me. The wounds we carry with us are not obstacles to simply get over. Rather, our wounds are the way through. And loss gives us new eyes to see the grace threaded through all humanity. She ended that her thoughts on this subject by saying this, a beautiful world waits for us on the other side of loss. I'll say it again. So you absorb that, write it down, keep it in your planner, put it on your phone. A beautiful world waits for us on the other side of loss, a world so expansive it has room for our pain. What are your thoughts, Warwick, about Kayla's experience and then your own experiences with understanding that truth, that the world on the other side of our crucible is expansive enough to welcome, to house our pain? Kayla and her story are so profound. I mean, her husband was a lead pastor at a large church in Southern California, committed suicide uh, at age 30. She was about the same age. She had uh, three boys, five and under. There was all sorts of anger, understandably. Her husband had mental health challenges that they were trying to get him help for. Um, so there was anger at, you know, probably, and she's a person of faith, I would imagine, a husband, God, I mean, a whole series of things of how could this happen? How could you be in this uh, position? But, um, you know, she's still in her early 30s, and I was just amazed at the profound level of wisdom. I mean, she wrote a book, uh, Rebuilding Beautiful, Welcome What Is, Dare to Dream Again, and Step Bravely into What Could Be. You know, Rebuilding Beautiful, her, you know, beautiful life in a sense, which wasn't perfect, you know, before her husband right. Andrew committed suicide, but it was, wasn't bad. You know, it's just rebuilding a life. Uh, and one of the most profound learnings that she shared that we were talking about here is she didn't run from pain. She acknowledged it. 
she, as she puts it, welcomed it. In my words, she ran to the storm, ran headlong into the hurricane, if you will. Right. I mean, who does that? You, you think when you see a storm, you run from it. And obviously, if it's a hurricane, yes. You know, if it's a real hurricane. <laughs> I don't think it's smart yes. or brave to head to the middle right. of it. <laughs> Thank you for that disclaimer, Warwick, for all our listeners. Yes, exactly. The legal department you know, thanks you. <laughs> yes, crucible uh, beyond the crucible leadership, listeners head into hurricanes. You know, we were just yeah. following the advice of Warwick and Gary. No, you know, no. please don't blame us for that. Yeah, and I think that is so true. And I think in in my own way, I'm a very reflective person. I'm just wired that way. I'm pretty self aware because I'm very reflective, and I want to know why I'm thinking the way I'm thinking. If I'm fearful, I got to understand why I'm fearful. Because if I'm fearful about something, if I know what it is, you know, the first step to dealing with it is to know what it is. And, you know, if it's personal, obviously, I'll typically talk to my wife, Gail. But uh, there's no question in, you know, coming back from the pain of, you know, losing a $2.25 billion business, family, 150-year-old family business where I felt like I let my, uh, father down, my great-great-grandfather, John Fairfax, my parents, 4,000-plus employees at the company. There was instability before, you know, eventually other people took it over and uh, went from there. There was a huge amount of uh, of pain. Um, so, yeah, Gail and I talked a lot. I had, you know, a period where, you know, with counseling, I'm a great believer and as appropriate where that's helpful and with friends. So, I've never been one to run away from the pain. I want to understand it, deal with it in the sense that you, you can't really turn the spigot off and say, okay, today I won't, be, I won't be in pain. Today I won't be in agony. I won't be grieving. It's ended. Okay, right. I'm good. You cannot control your emotions. I don't care who you are, how smart you are, how evolved you are. But what you can do is acknowledge it and understand it. You know, sometimes you might have a, a wave of maybe not clinical depression, but depression or fear or some negative emotion, the first step is you understand it. You know, your loved ones will typically be able to help you decipher it. Maybe it's not that hard for your friends and family. And then as you understand it and acknowledge it, it does help in that sense heading into the storm to understand it because then sometimes understanding it can help. I mean, one small analogy when I think of my own family and you know because of the wealth and money there's a fair share of dysfunctional relationships um, <laughs> you know uh, as I've looked at relationships or people and tried to understand well why do they act the way they act as I've understood their own hurt their own challenges from their upbringing understanding has made it easier for me to forgive and except in the sense of not like it, not condone it. But as I understand it, it does make sense. Even with me, as if I understand, oh, I understand why I'm, you know, fearful or, you know, it's, maybe I was triggered by something uh, from my family business days, it does help me deal with it. And obviously, as we've talked about earlier, um, as you use your pain, uh, and as I guess we heard earlier from Shelley Klingerman, as you use your pain for something positive, that's another help. But certainly, um, you know, understanding your pain, why it exists, where it came from, if other people caused it, you know, as I often say, hurt people hurt people. Well, why is the people that hurt us, why were they hurt? 
Where did that come from? So understanding our pain and its origins, it's not the total solution, but it's definitely a step in the right direction of being able to maybe not get beyond it, but live with it better and maybe reduce its effects some, I'd say. Yeah. Now, here's something that I didn't realize until just now. And I wrote the blog on which this conversation is, is based. Each one of these steps is is kind of a step, a uh, ladder, if you will, right? You start after your loss, you start being patient. Don't expect it to get enormously better overnight. Step one. Step two, work to change what you cannot accept. Okay, once you're able to kind of move forward, once you're 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 ready to tentatively step ahead, work to change what you cannot accept. See how you can try to find the gain within the loss, how you can affect change um, in an area that may have been affected by what you lost. Then the third point that we just talked about, understand there's room for your pain on the other side. So as you work through it, as you walk through it, there's, there's room for your pain when you get there. So you don't have to leave it on the road, you can take it with you. There's room for it when you get there. Now we get to our fourth point, again, an interlocking point that flows naturally from point three, and that is intentionally cultivate joy as you continue to grieve. And this uh, wisdom came from Marissa Renee Lee, whose mother lost her battle with breast cancer when her daughter was only 25 years old. In the near decade and a half since then, Lee has crafted a successful career working on Wall Street and in the Obama White House. Her successes, she says, have come not in spite of or even because of the loss that she's lived through. She's been able to live with the loss and thrive beyond it because she's also never stopped living with the love that was there that made it a loss. Um, As she points out in her book, Grief is Love, living with loss, we're taught that grief is something that arrives in the immediate aftermath of death. And while that's certainly true, it's not the whole story. Here's the key point. Grief is the experience of navigating your loss, figuring out how to deal with the absence of your loved one forever. It's understanding that the pain you feel because of their absence, because you've you've experienced a great love, that love doesn't end when they die and you don't have to get over it. In fact, she says a critical key to managing grief is to find joy, to accompany it through such means as leaning into celebrations is one of the things that she says. She also talks about, and I love this, and this hit me so hard when I, when we were doing the episode, I actually called her by the wrong name. I called her by her mom's name because her, her point is be a Lisa. And her mom's name was Lisa. And Lisa was, uh, her mom was someone who, who supported others, who gave to others, who helped others. That is a key point. Point four, cultivate joy as you continue to grieve. Continuing to grieve is okay. Find joy within it, right? Absolutely. I mean, Marissa Renee Lee, she was and is such an inspiring person. I mean, she's highly intelligent, uh, Harvard undergrad, uh, worked in the Obama White House on a number of initiatives, including My Brother's Keeper, which is a, a, a project um, for helping young African-American uh, boys and men. She worked in Wall Street. I mean, she is an inspiring person to see it. She'd say, this is a person who nothing will get her down. She will get through anything intelligent, funny, nice, personable, but she is very open about it. And I think she has so many lessons for us because we often feel like if we're intelligent, driven, 
highly evolved people that if we lose a loved one, for instance, that three months, six months, a year, we should be able to get over it with enough counseling, read enough books, enough intelligence, enough capacity, we can get through anything. That's our culture tends to teach us that in a sense. And she's there to say, no, I mean, grief never really goes. You learn to live with it. You learn to balance joy and grief. But, you know, I mean, she lost her uh, mom when she was 25 from the age 13 on. She was in grieving mode because her mother was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and then later breast cancer. So she's had a lot, many years of dealing with grief of, of losing her mother's physical capacity to be the mother she was and then losing her mother, you know, uh, sort of ultimately in, in death. But so she still grieves. She still has moments of anguish and agony, but she's learned to balance both grieving and, you know, not stop living. She is being, a, she's able to love. And as she puts it so eloquently, the more the love, the more the grief. It's just, right. it's kind of, uh, it's kind of inevitable. And um, I love the title, Grief is Love, Living with Loss. She knows, she, she figures out ways to deal with things. As you mentioned, celebrating things, you know, talking about being a Lisa, you know, her, her mother, she's, learn to try to bring humor into it. So she still grieves and she can't, you know, we can't control our emotions. A lot of our guests talk about you can't control your emotions. You've got to learn to live with them, not ignore them, not stuff them, experience them. And, you know, you learn to be able to live and experience, head towards them without it necessarily controlling you. Uh, just some profound learning from from Marissa as well as some of the other guests. This is like the most exciting part of the show for me because I've always wanted to ask you this question or a variation of this question ever since we started working together more than three years ago now. If this point, and this point is, point four is intentionally cultivate joy as you continue to grieve, listeners probably want to know this as much as I do. How did you find and cultivate joy, Warwick, in your quote unquote lost years, in those terribly painful years after the failure of the takeover and uh, that led you to have to basically leave Australia. How did you find joy in that time? Yeah, it's a good question, Gary. So for me, after the $2.25 billion takeover failed and my wife's American, so we moved to the US in the early 90s, which Australian newspapers have since, you know, called, you know, uh, my life in exile or something. And right. when I went back for my mother's funeral, she died at 95, and this was five years ago. It's like, you know, young Warwick, as they always call me, uh, you know, comes back <laughs> from exile. So listeners here in the United States, just to let you know, you're living in exile, I guess. I mean, but I don't think it's that bad a place myself, but this is exile. Um, and I guess they call me young Warwick because my father was so Warwick, and it's like, do I have to be 85 before I'll stop being called young Warwick? I mean, I'm not that young anymore, but oh well. I'd be happy if someone would call me young Gary, to be honest with you. So. I guess it all depends on the context. But um, yeah, for me, I guess finding joy in the early 90s, you know, uh, or through the 90s, we had young children. I have um, two boys and a girl, and so they were young. So just being able to play with them in the backyard, like with my oldest son, who, you know, life was grimmest, I guess, when my kids were youngest. 
And so, therefore, when my with my older son, uh, for instance, we'd throw base, uh, baseball in the backyard, and I grew up playing cricket, so not exactly the best baseball thrower in the world, but, you know, I figured it out, get a glove <laughs> and uh, throw <laughs> and uh, kick a soccer ball, which, you know, from the 90s on, certainly soccer is very popular here. Uh, so, and just the unconditional love uh, of my wife, uh, Gail, was just that, just her acceptance. That's, so, just being joyful in the little things with my kids, birthday parties, birthday cakes for the kids, you know, wrapping toys at Christmas, you know, the all those little things. I remember one year I got my uh, daughter, instead of it's boy, girl, boy, my daughter, this little red tricycle. And so, of course, you assemble it the night beforehand. How hard can it be? It was literally a three or four hour experience assembling this tricycle. It's like, this is unbelievable. That sort of fills you with joy in, in one sense. And then as there were things that I could do and do well, like getting a job with the aviation services company and getting good performance reviews for doing finance and business analysis, like, okay, that was a little drop of grace, a little drop of joy. And as I started doing meaningful work and on two nonprofit boards, feeling like I could contribute. So each of those little steps were drops of grace that gave me a degree of joy. There's something I can do and not screw up. But it started in those those were the hard, harshest days, the hardest days in the early 90s. We just having a young family that just knew me as daddy and they loved me unconditionally as, as kids do and just being able to play with them. Those were moments of joy that was definitely helpful as I look back. Mm. The fifth point in the blog, which is on crucibleleadership.com and uh, which is kind of a, of a, of a ribbon uh, on the package of our conversation here today is live as a good ancestor to those who come after you. And I'm, I'm really excited to get your views on this because you talk about your ancestors and their influence on you. So it'll be interesting to hear how you receive that exhortation to live today as a good ancestor to your progeny who come after you. But that came from, that bit of insight came from uh, Steve Leader, the senior rabbi of uh, Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles, who says that even after officiating a thousand funerals, more than a thousand funerals, it wasn't until his own father died that he felt like he truly understood the effect of death on him. When his father died, he realized that. And he said that the the thing that it taught him was to make the most of what he called our blessed lives with the people we love. His father's death taught him that thing. And one of the things he said to us, and that he, he says a lot, I think, is, and it's an inspiring way of inspiring others in how you live now that you're beyond your crucible, right? He says this, I often tell people that a great way to think about your life is to live as a good ancestor. We don't think of ourselves as ancestors when we are alive, but we're all going to be ancestors after we die. A very instructive question to ask while alive is this, am I living as a good ancestor for the generations to come? Most likely that will lead to a very meaningful life. So first, what was your uh, your takeaway from our talk with Steve Leader? And then how does the idea, how are you hoping your progeny 
will look back on their great, great grandfather, as you have talked often about your great, great grandfather. But first talk about Steve Leader. Yeah, Steve Leader is such an impressive person. He's highly intelligent. Uh, his senior rabbi, as you mentioned, at Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles, it's, I believe, the oldest Jewish uh, congregation in Los Angeles. It's a you know, very big um, synagogue. And uh, Steve is is an inspiring person because he mentioned, as you said, he officiated maybe a thousand funerals, but just that sense of loss, he had new uh, learning and meaning from it when his dad died. And he's very open about, uh, you know, they grew up in, you know, uh, not a very wealthy background in Minnesota. In fact, his dad and uh, an uncle uh, owned a junkyard. You know, it was right. a tough life that he grew up in. And his dad was a tough guy. And he was, you know, harsh almost in some sense. So it wasn't an easy relationship. It wasn't easy to win his favor, uh, you know, uh, from Steve to his dad. So he's open about that. But, you know, when he died, I think he began, he, I love his book title, The Beauty of What Remains. You begin to really look at what's important. There are a lot of things that he valued about his dad and some things he's open about saying he doesn't want to copy. But he, you know, he learned a lot in that in that process, and just that sense, that excellent question about how you know to live your life as a good ancestor. Uh, some of the people we've had on the podcast, and we talk about you know live your legacy today. Uh, again, we talk about this, and others do. You think about your funeral. What is it that you want your you know family, loved ones, and friends to say about you? It typically, won't be oh you know he or she had millions of dollars and. The big title and you know controlled a massive company it would be more you know uh, husband, wife, mother, father, friend. It's just who they are as as people and their character. That's typically what will matter to others. So you know, live your legacy, live as a good ancestor today. I mean, it's such such good advice. And I guess for me. Um, some people, some families don't really know a lot about their history. Well, and one of the benefits of coming from a, a wealthy, yeah. well-known family. There are books about it. Exactly. There are books about it. So there is a book written in like 1941 about John Fairfax, my great-great-grandfather, who died in On like the- On my bookshelf behind me. There you go. So he died in the 1870s. So obviously, I was born, you know, a long time after that. And so- I missed him and, you know, but I have a good sense of who he was. And while, as I've said a number of times, I haven't uh, really lived his business legacy. You know, he was a good business uh, man and um, those business genes, I think, died out over the years. My dad really wasn't a business guy. So those, I don't know where those genes went, but uh, they died out long, long time ago. <laughs> I'm afraid we're more newspaper reflective journalist types, if you will. But what I learned from him is, you know, he was, as I sometimes say in, in faith-based circles, he was the model of what it means to be a business person uh, for Christ in that sense, is that he, um, he was a good father, a good husband. His kids loved him. His wife loved him. He was a good employer. I mean, when he died, his employees said, we have lost, you know, a, a valuable friend. I mean, this is the 1800s. There was no work laws. I mean, there's no unions. You could pretty much do whatever you wanted to as an employer. 
And so he's somebody that he just lived his values, his beliefs. Uh, I'm sure he preached it, but he lived it. And so that sense of, you know, that role model of just being a, a good husband, a good father to the best of my ability, uh, to care for people around, to empathize. I, in some ways, in terms of his character, that's definitely a part of what I value in life and the legacy that I want to, to, to lead. And then with my father, yeah, my father wasn't perfect. He was married three times. He certainly made his share of mistakes. As I say, you know, who of us are perfect? But yet he had this sense of integrity, of doing the right thing no matter what. In 1976, when other family members threw him off as chairman, he could have tried to fight it from doing his own takeover or, you know, you know, taking on the board in some sense for wrongful dismissal. And he analyzed a lot of these things. But at the end of the day, he said, you know what? For the sake of me, you know, because he saw me as sort of the next generation um, that would come uh, after him and, and those that took over, family members that took after him, for the sake of the company, he felt it was the right thing to do. And I think of one more example uh, I talk about in the book in the 1941 election, I think it was, um, a conservative, Robert Menzies, uh, was prime minister. He was a good friend of my dad's and his then first wife. Well, they wrote an editorial saying Australia is in World War II, and he believed the, the Labor guy, John Curtin, was the best uh, person to be prime minister. Well, Robert Menzies felt betrayed, and he wouldn't talk to him pretty much for the mm -hmm. rest of his mm -hmm. life. Well, he went on to be one of Australia's longest-serving prime ministers in the late 40s and 50s. It's not like his career was done. Even though he was super successful and he never forgave that. So I guess from my dad, I've learned you do the right thing, can and run a what, and you know, two nonprofit boards, as listeners know, you know, the, being an elder at my church and on my kids' uh, school board. Even though I admire greatly the leaders of both organizations, I try to encourage, but I also try to ask tough questions. Do the right thing no matter what. They may be friends, I may admire them. But my job is you know, to fill, you know, uh, represent the congregation or the community. So I've learned a, I've learned a lot from my great-great-grandfather, John Fairfax, and my father, Sir Warwick Fairfax. So in my own way, assimilating those legacies that they've given me, yeah, I want crucible leadership to be successful and beyond the crucible. But it's not about money or numbers of books being sold. It's just trying to have an impact, be it big or small. I try to be, you know, my kids are now older, from 31 to 20s. I've always tried to be a present dad and be around them and, and with my wife. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I try to live that legacy and hopefully that's having an effect on my kids. Humility is one of my highest values. So when I see my kids who, you know, we're not poverty stricken by any means, but we're very, very, if not extremely comfortable. When I see them with, yeah, like my younger son uh, was looking to get a uh, a new a, a different car, and it's like, yeah, you know, um, he had a Hyundai coupe, and it's like, yeah, I think I'm going to get a a used Mazda CX-5, you know, small, you know, uh, SUV, and it's like he wasn't saying, hey, Dad, can you help me get out get a new, you know, uh, Ferrari or something. And not only did he not ask for a new one, he got a fantastic deal. He found some dealer in Minnesota, and he lives in Indiana. Right. The, and so I can't tell you that blesses me no end, that um, I don't have to preach humility to him. He's living it. 
So, I mean, when you see concrete evidence of your kids living your values of humility and integrity, doing the right thing. So I feel like I've learned those points, those aspects of legacy from my dad and my great-great-grandfather. And when I see evidence, as I see a lot of my kids living, not just my legacy, but their ancestors' legacy, I mean, it blows me away. I mean, it fills me with, talk about joy, immense joy and pride when I see that. Again, I'm not perfect, they're not perfect, who's perfect? But when I see them living those legacies, it's just, um, it does fill me with joy and gratitude, immense joy and gratitude, I have to say. And I know this to be true, your son's father, when he was in charge of John Fairfax Limited, drove a Honda to work. So, well, uh, well I, actually, that, that's, it's funny. I have driven Hondas in the U.S. There's no question. Back then, this is funny. It's pretty much the same thing. I drove a red Toyota Camry. Um, oh, Camry. And, sorry. Okay. And uh, that was mm, kind of a bit of reverse uh, snobbery. In the, I've always prided myself on being humble. That's not an oxymoron. And so while the executives that I hired drove, you know, the Mercedes and Daimlers and whatever they were driving. Right. I pull in to, with my red Toyota Camry into the executive parking lot. And yeah, I had, it was kind of humble, kind of not, not part of me was like, look, I'm humble. Look at the car I'm driving. I'm not doing this <laughs> Daimler Mercedes. Look at me. I'm, I'm pretty humble, aren't I? Look, you know, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty good, huh? So I feel like yeah. I lose a few points for that one. But hey, I was young. Uh, but yeah, I prided myself on my humility if that's contradiction in terms, which kind of is a bit. No, yeah. if we're grading on the curve, <laughs> you still come above the CP level, so that's good. Um, one of the places I wanted to go, so we, we've gone through all five points, and, I, and I'll wrap them up when we wrap up this this episode. But one of the places I wanted to go, just before we we leave listeners, because a member of our team, Casey Helmick, who, who does the podcast, like production oversight ideas for the show. When we were talking about doing this wrap up episode, it was like, well, it'd be really interesting if you guys, this isn't Casey's voice, by the way. I don't know why I'm, I'm changing my voice to sound like that. He doesn't sound like that at all. Casey said, <laughs> it would be very interesting if you guys talked about what of those five guests that you talked to, what, if anything, surprised you? And I'll go first because, I mean, instantaneously this leaped to my mind um, as I pondered that question for like half a second. And what surprised me, and it's it's surprising that it surprised me, because as I said, this is more than 140 episodes of this show. We've heard a lot of stories of people who've been through some pretty traumatic crucibles. But when Jason Schechterly said, and you you said it earlier, Warwick, and I almost was like, no, don't say that because you're. But all that was it was a it was a it was a a, a trailer for what I'm saying now as a preview. Um, my surprise was Jason summing up his experience by saying, "I have gained everything and lost nothing." Now, if you're only a listener to the show. Based on what we've described, Warwick and I both think we're pretty good with word pictures, but you don't really know exactly, you can't feel exactly what Jason has been through unless you see Jason say these things. So my encouragement to you is on our Facebook page on, actually, if you go to YouTube and search for Crucible Leadership, we have a YouTube page. And there's a video clip of Jason saying that very thing. I've gained everything and lost nothing. 
Watch the video clip. Look at the man. You can see what he's been through. We've told you what he's been through. He tells you what he's been through on the show, but you can see what he's been through. And this is a man who said, I've gained everything and I've lost nothing. If I could live my life, that's my challenge coming out of this series work. I want to live my life by that motto. I want to be the guy who says, no matter what happens to me, I've gained everything and I've lost nothing. That to me was the most profound, moving, challenging thing I've heard as a, as the co-host of the show and certainly from this series. What was your surprise moment? Yeah, I mean, just before we get to that, I mean, what you just said, Gary, is is so true and so profound. And when you see him and, you know, the, the video clips is certainly uh, online uh, as we speak on our social media. When you look at him, it's like 56 surgeries. He is disfigured. He went, he got, went through fourth degree burns. I mean, that's, that's as much as you can go through. There is no more than fourth degree. The level of pain he went through, uh, the fact that there are consequences, pain, uh, he doesn't want to scare kids, you know, right. and places. It limits where you can go. You know, he's lost, I think, uh, one or two fingers, I think, on one of his hands. I mean, it's, you know, it's been life-changing physically, emotionally. So when he says, I've gained, you know, everything, it's like, when you look at him as he says that, so I would encourage listeners, go to go to us on LinkedIn and Facebook and, and look at those clips and ponder what Gary has said. It's just like, how in the world could anybody say that I've gained everything? You know, I mean, it's just, it, it, it makes no sense in one sense, but it just shows the profound wisdom that he's learned. So for me, um, a number of them, I think one of the guests that really stood out to me is, is Kayla Stecklin. And um, as we mentioned, lost her husband, Andrew, to suicide in 2018. And just the sense of, she really, uh, you know, headed into the grief and sort of, in my words, head into the storm. And I think this is amplified too by uh, Marissa Renee Lee is, you know, sometimes people and especially men, I think, in our culture are told, you know, suck it up, uh, you know, get beyond your grief. If you're a tough guy, a tough person, you can get beyond it. And that's just not true, whether it's pain or grief. You've got to really head into it and experience it, not to for the sake of wallowing, but the only way to get beyond grief, if it's even possible, the only way to get through grief is to head straight for it. You know, the path to getting through grief is heading to grief, if you will. Again, it's not wallowing forever. Yes, you know, counseling, uh, you know, wisdom from friends, mentors, loved ones. That's all important, but... Um, you can't ignore your feelings. You've got to face them. And I think as we've found in, uh, our, in you know, our series, and certainly on Beyond the Crucible, very often the, uh, your purpose, your calling is found from the ashes of your crucible, from your pain. And so there can be a blessing that comes out of uh, grief, out of loss. As I mentioned, that is the case with me. I, a few years ago, even maybe six months ago, I don't know that I would have said quite this, but um, I now view what I went through 
as a blessing. I never would have got out of John mm-hmm. Fairfax because uh, right. I felt like it was founded by you know, a person of faith, my great-great-grandfather admired my dad. I would have felt like I was betraying my legacy, betraying my heritage. So I, I right. could never have left voluntarily, but maybe there was some divine force up there saying, you know, we're going to free you one way or the other from your gilded cage. You know, we're going to get you out. I don't know if that's true or not. You know, I have no idea, but I sometimes wonder. I know yeah. someone who does think it's true. <laughs> Rabbi Steve Leader, do you remember as we were, it was off air, but as, as we were saying goodbye to him, right because he had a call that he had to go yeah, on, yeah. right before he took that call, he said, and losing that company was the best thing that ever happened to you. <laughs> he said that to you right there after spending an hour with you in the in conversation. So Yeah, that's a great point, Gary. And uh, Rabbi Steve Leader is right. It was a blessing that it happened. The best thing that ever happened to me uh, maybe I'm still not quite there at saying the best thing, but uh, <laughs> it certainly was a a blessing. Just, you know, my kids can grow up as normal kids. They never would have grown up that way in Australia in the Fairfax sort of goldfish bowl in Sydney. It's like being a, a Bush or a Rockefeller or a Kennedy. I mean, it's just, you know, it's impossible. Everybody knows who you are. So, yeah, head into the storm. Don't ignore it. Feel your feelings. And out of that, you might find a greater purpose that actually makes that loss a little easier to deal with. The pain doesn't go away, but there are ways to make it easier to deal with by heading heading into the storm. It sounds counterintuitive. Again, we're not advising people to head into hurricanes. This is a metaphor. Don't take this too literally. Okay, metaphor with a capital M. So, yeah. So that puts uh, the the plane on the ground for this episode of Beyond the Crucible as we wrap up our series, Gaining from Loss. Let me review what we've gone through in our discussion. We've gone through five points, five, not two hands, Gary, just one hand. We've gone through five points uh, of what our guests not only unpacked from their own stories, but offer to you, our listeners, as a roadmap for you to follow, to move beyond your loss and to find gain in the wake of it. Point one, be patient. Point two, work to change what you cannot accept. Point three, understand there's room for your pain on the other side of your loss. Point four, intentionally cultivate joy as you continue to grieve. And number five, Live as a good ancestor to those who come after you. You pool all those together and those become a roadmap to help you do what this series title that we were a little worried about at the beginning, but aren't now uh, gaining from loss. You put those all together and what you get is gain from loss. Any final thoughts, Warwick? We're already over time. What the heck? We can take another couple of minutes if you have another thought before I close. You know, I think one of the things we say here all the time, if you had to say, what is the thing that you most say on Beyond the Crucible and Crucible Leadership Bits, your worst day doesn't have to define you. You know, it's probably one of, if not the most quoted phrases that we use. And so you may have suffered a loss, uh, a, a horrific loss, you may be thinking about the holidays with grim trepidation, not hopeful anticipation. It might be like, oh my gosh, the holidays reminds me of everything I lost. I think of those so-called families that seem to have it all, you know, the idyllic Thanksgiving, the idyllic Christmas and New Year, and we're just a dysfunctional mess, or even if we're not, 
We're just grieving the loss of our mother and father, brother, sister, son, daughter. That may be your reality. And you know, I, I don't diminish the pain. We acknowledge it. I acknowledge it. But what we want to get across is uh, your worst day doesn't have to define you. You don't have to be defined by loss. Each of our five guests were not defined by the loss. They found a way to use that loss for a higher purpose. Um, in the case of Shelley Klingerman, to you know, um, just not accept what happened, find a way to use that to uh, that devastating loss to honor her brother. So, don't let your worst day define you. And there is hope amongst the grief uh, and the loss and the pain. So, find your way through grief to live a a joyful life on purpose. It's it's, po- it's possible to both to be grieving as we learned from Marissa Renee Lee, as well as have a joy-filled, purposeful life, which we believe at Crystal Leadership uh, is a life of significance, a life on purpose, dedicated to serving others. You want joy and fulfillment in life. We believe it's through leading a life of significance. So it is possible to get on the other side of, of grieving through loss, at least to a point where you're able to, ha- to carry on uh, with life. And that is the last declarative words to be spoken on this episode. I'm going to ask before we go, listeners, I'm going to give you a question. Again, our blog on this subject is at crucibleleadership.com. And as we do with every blog, the ending of it are some questions for reflection for you as the reader of the blog. And here's one of those questions for you to ponder as, um, as we say goodbye for this episode. And that is this, what are you doing now? Or what can you do today to cultivate joy even as you grieve a loss in route to creating it as a gain? What can you do today to cultivate joy? That's the question for you to ponder. Until next time, we understand, we do. Hopefully this episode proved it. We understand that your crucible experiences are painful. We understand that uh, they are devastating. They are losses for sure. But we also know from our own experience and and from the experience of not just of these five guests that we had here, but the almost 100 guests that we've talked to on the show since it's, it's started. And that's this. Your crucible experiences, your losses aren't the end of your story. They can be, in fact, the beginning of a new story. And that new story can be the greatest story, the greatest headline, and have the greatest ending than you've ever imagined. All you have to do is to not stay under the covers and to get up and put one foot, as Warwick says all the time, one small step. One small step, one small step, one small step that will lead you in the end to the place that our our guests often end up at. They talk about ending up there, and that is a life of significance.